From LibertyCast Studios and the Defenders of Capitalism Project, here's another capital idea from your host, Mike Williams. Mike Williams here, defender and champion of laissez-faire capitalism. All right, welcome back to another episode of Capital Idea. This is Michael Williams with the Defenders of Capitalism Project, where we talk about all things capitalism, all things free markets. We associate lots of different uh, topics into the idea of what does it mean to fight for and advocate for free markets, individual rights, the proper role of government, and maybe most importantly, engaged citizens, people actually holding their government accountable. I'm most excited today to have a very honored guest. I think he might be one of the best CEOs in Colorado, maybe even the country. And, and I don't know if he calls himself a defender of capitalism, if you've ever used that term. But in my book, he definitely is. Part of why I say that is he has the courage about defending the oil and gas industry, doing a better job virtually than anybody that I can imagine in educating people about the necessity of defending oil and gas. Say hello, Chris. Hello, Mike. Great to be here. And, and of course, I'm a defender of capitalism. I'm a, I'm a defender of human liberty, bottom-up social organization, whether it's social, political, economic. It's the unleashing of the human spirit, the hu- human ability to voluntarily cooperate in all different forms. That's what created the modern world. Absolutely. Two things enabled our modern world, the growth of human liberty and the arrival of hydrocarbons. Absolutely. So Chris is the CEO and chairman of Liberty Energy. And like I said, thank you so much for joining us today. We've got a lot of listeners who follow your work, who know you, and want to hear what you have to say about a lot of things. So let's just jump right in. I, you know, the thing that got me interested in your work, and I'm sure you've heard this a bunch, is this whole North Face thing, right? Uh, we've got it up on our website. For those of our listeners who haven't seen it, you should check our Defenders of Capitalism website. We've got this uh, YouTube video of Chris Wright, CEO of Liberty Energy, talking to, really talking to North Face. I mean, evidently North Face came out and said, the oil and gas industry isn't quite PC enough or clean enough for us, so we're not going to do uh, the fleece pullovers or jackets, the logo work for you guys. And, and then you, I don't know how you thought of this. I, I want to hear the background about that, but you're flipping through the catalog, just showing everyone how virtually every single product that the North Face or outdoor apparel manufacturers all over the world make and use every one of these products is either made of or very much dependent upon, like most of our products in our modern world, but certainly these made of oil and gas are made of petroleum products, right? Exactly. I mean, the outdoor industry is one of the luxuries that's enabled by the arrival of hydrocarbons and human liberty. Nobody climbed mountains 300 years ago or skied or snowboarded or recreationally sailed or did any of the things that are the target markets for North Face or any of the outdoor companies. My my wife and I are longtime outdoor people, climbers, skiers, cyclists, adventurers. And when we were young, Patagonia was this new company, made awesome gear, and then they came out, you know, disgusted by oil and gas, and were on these campaigns again. Everything, everything they made was made out of oil and gas and sold into in, in industry outdoors, made possible by oil and gas, so we could write them off as, yeah, okay, but they don't get it. And so we, we switched over a long time ago to be North Face people. You know, North Face, and we have a, a great friend who's a world-class climber and and a, and really a high-caliber, great human who was at North Face. So we're close to him. We were already North Face fans. That made us, you know, North Face fans squared. And in several years ago, maybe four years ago, we actually bought 2,000 North Face jackets branded Liberty and North Face, um, just as we should, celebrating the great outdoors. And then a year or two later, another company, a smaller company in our industry, what one based in Houston, uh, they wanted to do the same thing, put the Innovex logo on a North Face jacket. 
And Mike, as you said, North Face came back and said, no, we, we don't want to associate our brand with your industry. And he pushed back and said, well, what do you mean? How do you do that? And I think they said they, they didn't want to associate with the firearms, tobacco, pornography, and like hydrocarbons. You so know, like those are all. So they were throwing hydrocarbons in with pornography. Yeah, as like some, you know, sin or, and even then, I'm a libertarian, so people can participate in whatever sins they want as long, as long as they don't harm other people in the process. But to tie those together and the irony of, you know, North Face, whose just entire existence as a company is only possible because of hydrocarbons. You know, again, in the specifics, all their products are made out of hydrocarbons, all the activities, you got to drive to the ski area, you ride a diesel-powered lift, or you climb faraway mountains. Well, how do you get there? We fly on airplanes, we ride buses. When you're high on a mountain, there is no water, right? You're high on a glacier. You scoop up snow or chip ice off on a glacier, and then you burn propane to melt it. I mean, it's just there is no more closely activity, more closely associated with hydrocarbons than outdoors, and North Face picks this fight. So the first thing I did was I made a video, just my daughter holding an iPhone, and it's in my sort of nerdy style. It's six and a half minutes long. And I went through why they were hypocritical, wrong, and, and a destructive viewpoint. And so, and, and this, you know, was sent just to people in our company. It leaked out and, you know, maybe got, I don't know, 15 or 20,000 views. And I mean, I'm, I'm no social media guy, but then a friend of mine, a really bright guy said, Chris. He saw the potential of that, yeah. yeah. Well, you said, well, everything that you did you shouldn't be critiquing North Face. You should be thanking them. What a great customer in this industry. And I said, you know, Alex, you're absolutely right. And then I thought, you know, my maybe serious, maybe too scolding of a tone. Well, I mean, who wants to listen to that? So then I ended up writing like another version of the video that was half as long, like a little more than three minutes in a still honest, but had a little bit of a humor tone to it, thanking them for being this extraordinary customer and partners and bringing the outdoor world to life. And then these great editors at Daily Wire who are real professionals, they took this three some minute video, which they shot and they edited it down to like a little over a minute, you know, and that got like 6 million views. I mean, I had film crews from Japan coming over to, you know, talk and interview. Like, wow, I'd never been a media guy before. But I, but I learned a lot through that. You know, make something fun, make it punchy. I didn't, I didn't ever put any graphics in there. They had great graphics. And yeah, whatever. I got a lot of room to learn in communication. So what was North Face's, and maybe more broadly, the outdoor apparel and equipment manufacturers, what, how did they respond? I think I saw a little bit of an article in Outdoor Magazine about this a while back, but what was the response? Not necessarily, well, I want to hear this too. Like, how did your industry respond to it? Are they like, all right, we got a champion. We got somebody who's going to stand up to this and, and actually make some sense of it. But how initially did the more environmentally you know, known associated with crowd and companies like that, how did North Face respond to it? Well, they didn't. And, and look, at, I also believe I love fair and honest discussion and debate. So I actually sent the video to the CEO of North Face before it was released, the original one. No response. You know, I, I never I never heard from him. I didn't know him. And then after, you know, after the later version of the video that got a lot of views, no response from North Face. I, I heard through a friend that they'd reached out for my contact info. And, and of course, they said, of course, I would love to sit down, have lunch, a beer, a dialogue. But I, they never actually did reach out to me. I, I, I believe the guy who made the decision to deny the co-branding was let go. Really? The CEO of VF Corp has since been replaced. I don't know what these are related to or not, 
But I have a feeling that if we called up and ordered jackets today, probably they'd fill that order. <laughs> the, the other problem I think that came from it that I noticed was I went to the North Face website, and of course it was littered with comments from people saying, oh, well, well, maybe my Gore-Tex jacket's made out of oil and gas, but certainly not my polypropylene underwear. That can't be oil and gas. <laughs> like the vast majority of the public has no idea in the outdoor world, no idea that everything they wear is oil and gas, not just used oil and gas to make it. It actually is plastics, synthetic fabrics. They are oil and gas. So that, that, that was probably the publicity they didn't want. And yeah, yeah whatever. Maybe, maybe there'll be less in-your-face virtue signaling going forward, at least for a little while, I hope. So how do people in the industry, in your industry itself, react to that? Because they, from my perspective, they, there haven't been enough people like yourself, articulate, outdoor people, environmentalist to the core and saying, you know, I, I, this is my environment too. I want to live in a clean place. I want to, I want to enjoy myself. I want to enjoy the great outdoors. But how did people in the oil and gas react to your advocacy and standing up to that kind of, like you said, virtue signaling? Oh yeah. I, I think it was, I think people liked it quite a bit, but of, of course it's something our industry should have been doing all along. Exactly. We, we've just generally been kind of keep your head down. People don't like you. So, you know, we'll just deal with the government when we need permits or stuff like that, but people don't like us. Let's keep our head down. And that's just a terrible strategy, of course, because that, that means how, how do people know? People didn't even know all this outdoor stuff is made out of oil and gas. People don't realize how integral their quality of life is to hydrocarbons in general. And that's shame on us for not engaging in that dialogue. And when we do, it's in these sort of carefully scripted talking points from the legal and PR department. And people see right through that as well. Come on. I so do think- you feel like you've emboldened people in your industry now? There's more people who are actually... I mean, one, I'm sure you're familiar with Alex Epstein, uh, who's who's done a lot of work in terms of trying to make the case, the, you know, the moral case for fossil fuels, you know, the, the, his Center for Industrial Progress. And, and, and I think he's had some impact, but I'm curious, you're now a star. I mean, you're, you're getting probably speaking gigs. Maybe you don't even have time to run your company now. You're, you're like you said, a media personality speaking all over the world and, and being asked to comment on this kind of thing. But has it emboldened more people in the industry to, to, to take a whole new fresh look at their own industry and the, the true virtues that they offer. Well, I hope so. But you know, I would say my, my success to date is probably marginal at best. That the still the general attitude is, you know, thanks a lot, Chris. You're taking the arrows for us and standing up. And my immediate response is, I'm not taking any arrows. If you're honest and sincere in what you communicate, it's it's hard for people to shoot arrows at me. I, I speak about climate change all the time. People say you should never do that. I think it's critical. The misunderstanding of climate change is, is not only leading to this assault on our industry, but it's leading to this assault on capitalism and bottom-up so, social organization that you and I are so passionate about. You know, this is not stuff to be quiet about. This is stuff to be outspoken about in a thoughtful way. You know, the, most of the people that are very passionate about climate change or hate our industry, they don't, they don't know that much about climate change. They don't understand that everything has trade-offs. You know, do we, do we have negative impacts of our industry? Of course. It's just the positives are so much larger. But how would a kid or someone who's a real estate developer know that today if our industry's silent? Yeah. So do you think that it's uh, that innocent on the part of uh, the people out there who are shooting arrows at the, at the oil and gas industry? Certainly, like I mentioned, there's a lot of people out there who enjoy the great outdoors or who, are, you know, who consider themselves environmentalists. 
you know, the average person who's like, yeah, I don't, I don't want to have uh, pollution. I don't want to have a, a dirty environment. But they, they've been kind of coached. They've been, there's been a lot of indoctrination, in my view, uh, in the educational system and so forth. Do you think there's innocence on the part of the people who are actually advocating for this extreme environmentalism that doesn't make those trade-offs, does, that, that doesn't really account for the net benefit versus the cost? Well, I think it's a mix of all sorts of things. Look, first of all, the level of naivete is crazy high. I mean, I've debated climate change on TV, and in the TV breaks, the climate campaigners are asking me for the climate facts. I mean, that they, the, the, literally, literally the knowledge of people very passionate about it in general is pretty low. So I think for most people, it's more a cause, it's a mission, it's a search for meaning. It's not a they've done the math, they understand the damages of climate change and how for less than the, you know, we could spend less on the cost to get more benefits. They, they, I've, I've, yet, I've yet to meet, well, I've met one or two, one or two in probably hundreds of dialogues that are familiar at all really with those trade-offs. And maybe they have a different view than I do than the trade-offs, but most people are just unaware of it. And I think of the youth today, you mentioned in schools. Yeah, this is this indoctrination, I mean, it's in elementary school now, it's in junior high, it's in high school, it's in college. If I speak at high schools or, or colleges, maybe the most interesting, you know, I'll show up on a college campus and there are people with protest signs and, you know, a packed room that's almost a sort of hostile environment. I haven't been shouted down yet. Um, but in that dialogue, I think opinions change quite a bit. You know, if you lead with, hey, here, here, here's where I came from. Here was my view. Here's what I've learned. Are we perfect? Of course not. Here's our negatives. Here's our positives. You know, the calculus is actually quite a bit different than you think. People have no idea. There, you know, two and a half billion people don't even have clean cooking fuels, and this kills millions. College kids are idealistic. They want to make the world a better place. They just, most of them just believe that climate change is this existential threat, and who wouldn't want to push back against an existential threat? But at the end of a lecture in college, you know, I'll have a line of people for internships to get more information, people saying, hey, look, I've, I've, I've been against your industry my whole time. I just never realized that before. So most people's opposition to hydrocarbons and sort of climate mania is really very, it's, it's broad, but it's very shallow. So I, I, I think it's very movable. The, the, the public just wants to be, they want to make the world a better place. They want to feel passionate about something. There's, of course, 15% or whatever that, you know, no facts are going to move them. And right, right. there's maybe 15% on the other side. But it's that two-thirds of humanity in the middle. Um, you know, shame on us. They've only heard one thing. You know, what a shock they believe it. Yeah, yeah. So how did you get so passionate about industry? Tell our audience a little bit about your background. Um, I know you have a heavy science background, MIT. You grew up here in Colorado. We have a lot in common. You grew up, I love the outdoors, I love skiing and cycling. Tell people about how you, you know, started in Colorado and, and your educational background and how you got really passionate about energy. So I would say two things quite impactful from my youth. One was, yeah, so I was sort of a math science guy. I mean, I got above average quantitative skills, and I was super fascinated by science, science fiction, astronomy, um, you know, whatever that was. And then the mania, and, and look, if you look in history, there's almost always some kind of a social mania that's something to do with the end of times coming, the world is in catastrophe if we don't do plan B, and what, what the problem is and what the plan is, that changes every generation or two. But, they, you know, a mania is not a new thing. And when I was a kid, the mania was we we're running out of everything. We're going to run out of oil and gas. We're going to run out of metals and fertilizers and farmland and industrial civilizations unsustainable. And there's going to be a collapse unless we change our ways dramatically. 
um, A.A. Bartlett was a physics professor at CU who was preaching this. You know, he's a prominent guy. So in high school, I'm like, wow. You know, I, my passion is I wanted to travel the world and climb mountains. And, and, uh, and I knew that I was lucky. I was a middle-class kid in the suburbs of Denver, Colorado, and I'm going skiing on the weekends and I'm playing tennis. I had no illusions that I was super lucky. And I went down to my dad's office when I was about 12 years old in downtown Denver, and I saw a homeless person on the street. I knew nothing about substance abuse or mental illness, but I just couldn't believe that there was someone without a roof over his head or enough food to eat here in America, in Denver, you know, in in this modern time. That had a searing impact on me that... Look, my life is awesome. I was very optimistic about my future. I'm an optimist by nature, but I knew there were a lot of people that weren't in a good place. They, you know, they they were they didn't have the basic things that gave you and me our opportunities in life. So my passion since that day forward has been freedom and well, I learned in my research originally at 12-year-old kid, I thought, well, there's so much fewer poor people than there are wealthy people. Clearly, a small shifting of resources from here to there should fix this problem, and I was outraged that we hadn't fixed it yet. Um, so I'm 12 years old. I don't know anything about economics, so I probably had that sort of simpleton view that maybe defines a lot of people's politics. And then as I started to spend time in the ghetto, when I was in college, I didn't go to class a lot. I hitchhiked up and down the East Coast and spent times in Harlem and the ghettos in D.C. and Roxbury in, in Boston and, and Cambridge. So I, I, and then I traveled in the Caribbean and Africa to go to poor countries. And it was the up-close personal view and understanding that just dramatically changed my views, made me a hardcore libertarian bottom. I mean, I was reading Milton Friedman and Tom Sowell maybe by 17 or 18, but that, you know, the light probably wasn't fully on for me until 18 or 19 that these, that, that the only cure for, that moving resources from A to B never cures poverty, never, and never makes people happy. So I, I became sort of committed to capitalism, free markets, limited government, but very importantly, rule of law. And in Africa, you know, why, why are they poor and wealthy? They don't have rule of law. They have, you know, sort of corrupt kleptocratic governments that don't give people those, those basic liberties to build their wealth and build their businesses. It's amazing to me how many people uh, think of Africa in the wrong way. You know, they think, okay, there's poverty there and, and we can help them. We can, we can pull them out of poverty. We'll go over there and we'll, we'll drop food, we'll drop medicine, we'll give them stuff. Versus the old idea of teach them how to fish. And your point, most importantly, is actually having a structure that actually respects rights, you know, respects property rights, and actually has the rule of law. I mean, that's the best thing we could do for Africa, right? Is actually having them understand more clearly what it means to have markets, to have property. You know, because they, they're so resource rich, they would take off. They would be incredible. Yeah, again, when I was young, originally I was in this search for what causes poverty, And then, you know, again, maybe my late teens or 20 years old, I realized that's the wrong question. The human condition throughout all time and everywhere was poor. The question is what leaves people out of poverty? And my quick summary there is I I say three different things in order. Number one, rule of law in institutions. You know, the, the glorious revolution in England and really the American revolution, if you enshrine uh, rule of law and and limited government and human liberty. Humans are ingenious and they will create wealth and opportunity and happiness and joy. Number one is institutions. Number two is culture. You know, if you have a belief in the future, you have a trusted family infrastructure, you know who to trust 
and you believe, you never lose sight that my future is up to me. It's you have these cultural values. You look at you know Lebanese immigrants or Jewish immigrants all around the world or Indians from Gujarat province. You know they they, they leave a poor troubled place in India and they kick ass all over the world. Tom Sowell wrote tremendously on this in Migrations and Culture. But culture is just huge in the road out of poverty. And then last is education. If you have one and two, you don't even need a lot of education to do well. But if you, if you have all three of those, there's just no chance you're going to be poor. You don't need all three. But so everything my wife and I have done outside of our family and business is in those three areas, because those are the three areas where you can improve the life opportunities, particularly for those less fortunate. And, and here you are uh, going great guns on number one. Doing our best about it. Um, so what do you think happened? I mean, you, you talk about your your observations, and oftentimes that can be better than classroom education. But um, what do you think happened in terms of our education that made it so one-sided? For kids today to grow up and not even be exposed to maybe just a, the other idea about, well, wait, there's trade-offs with regard to anything, and look at how much how much we depend on, you know, just for our very day-to-day lifestyle, how much we depend on the energy industry. What do you think, how, how did that happen where we just had an education system who really blew it? Well, look, our education system changed dramatically, really in the 60s and 70s, and these changes started in the 50s. Uh, if you look at American education before that, the average academic achievement of a teacher was above average. Teacher was a, now we, we had a different, uh, we had different rights and a different social structure then, so teachers were almost all women. So it was limited mostly to women, but this was an aspiring education. The best and brightest wanted to become teachers and did become teachers. And there was a belief in this American system. There was this belief in capitalism, belief in science, belief in whatever. And then education slowly, through collective bargaining rights, slowly became sort of a unionized, top-down interest group. We're going to control the interest of the teachers. Um, the average quality of people going into teaching declined. The freedom and 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 the 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 joy and freedom of being a teacher just slowly got squelched. And American educational performance versus countries around the world went from among the top to heck, we don't crack the top twenty today. Yeah, it's amazing. So yes, we had a structural change in our education system that I think removed the normal feedback loops of teach the things that are most successful and most enlightening for kids. And you know, now teaching is 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 a way over politicized profession. You talked about. Uh, Climate change and energy, you know, sort of we, when do we lose our way there? How come there's so many people here? Look at the timing of the arrival of this. When I was in college in the 80s, right, probably a third of the professors were communists. Because if you were an academic or intellectual, you know, that was sort of the contrary thing. Well, capitalism is evil and, and uh, you know, they were at some level apologists. You know, communism has just not been done right, but it should be scientifically designed from the top down. Universities tend to be pretty divorced from how the world works, and they wanted to find themselves as contrary to that. That's what makes them special. That's what makes them needed. So, and then the Berlin Wall fell and the Soviet Union collapsed. And we went through a time period where... It wasn't fashionable in any structure. Sort of the lie was given up. Right. Everybody who lived under a communist government, even the people that were in the government, you know, wanted to embrace, you know, Western capitalism. East Germany you know, wanted to be absorbed into West Germany. That sort of view of this top-down designed social and economic system, it sort of lost its luster. Unfortunately, it's getting it back. But, but this is when the environmental movement really filled that gap. 
If you're a university, a top-down person, you don't you you either haven't participated in or don't believe in sort of the free interchange of society. Well, what's what's my meaning now? Well, but and this was just so perfect. Well, there's the capitalism is driving us headlong off the cliff, and the world's going to be destroyed. And now it's not in the name of communism, but it's in the name of saving the planet. That we must redesign how society works and how it's energized and how everything works. I mean, it's just too perfect. So it got, you know, this idea ran wild among, I would say, the top-down intellectual crowd. And there's just so many other reasons it appealed to so many other constituencies that it's really rolled up into quite a big snowball today. Yeah, and you, you talked about how every generation has its own, like, the world's ending, uh, catastrophic predictions about what's going to happen. And, and I think you're right, that happened during... During that time period, are you familiar with a book called *The Merchants of Despair*? Have you heard of that? Yes, I have. I think it's really well done. Now, maybe it's over the top, but it, it's talking about you know people like all the way from Malthus, you know, yes. who who predicted you know we're going to have way too many people on the earth. Food production can't actually keep up with population growth, uh, and was proved you know enormously wrong. And all the way through to Al Gore today, and climate alarmists right now. Do you think that just because it's is it endemic in the human nature to always say, well, is the world going to end? What's going to get us next? time? Or do you think it's more purposeful and strategic in terms of, like you were mentioning, the ideological viewpoints that are being presented on campuses that really do filter all the way down through even elementary schools and and our whole culture? Do you think it's more that or just the sort of cycles that we go through as human beings? Well, I think it's both. I think it's both. You know, I think human nature is, we're drawn to, I mean, look at religion, you know, we're drawn to a structure, a story where doom is Doom is coming, but there's things we can do. There's the virtuous, there's the sinners, um, and there's behavioral changes we can do to stave this off. The climate change mania, I think, has really grown because our society is becoming secular, rapidly secularizing. Throughout most of human history, you know, faith in all different creeds, faith was a great giver of meaning. There is something bigger than myself. There is something non-trivial. There's a reason for sacrifice and suffering and a way to make the world a better place. That drove most of humanity, I think, and still does in lower income countries. You know, they think that climate change stuff is sort of silly. I mean, I don't think they pay attention to it. But faith is still often very powerful there and gives people toughness and meaning and belief. And, 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 a, and a source of love, where as that's fallen out in wealthy Western societies, kids have got to be about more than their social media feed and getting their new iPhone, right? They crave meaning and feeling, and they're not getting it from traditional sources. And this sort of fits it. You know, I can change my behavior to what's bigger than saving the planet. Yeah. There's the devils that I'm going to outstridently stand against and push. It's mostly faith-based, I think, among the youth, the sort of the climate thing. University professors I'll talk to a lot. And, you know, over beers after a talk, they'll say, I mean, yeah, Chris, I mean, you're probably right. Yeah, I mean, I'm not saying all this exaggerated stuff. And I'm, well, you're not pushing back against it. Well, I mean, Chris, that's how we get the funding. Yeah. If I'm doing my... It's the main source of funding for basic research in universities. When, when I was in graduate school, it was the Department of Defense. I worked in semiconductor device physics, and the Department of Defense funded it because it could make satellites smaller and lighter if you could make power supplies smaller. So now there's so much business interest in it, right? There's just We spent more last year 
in developing, in quotes, clean energy, because it's not clean, it's lower greenhouse gas emissions, but definitely not cleaner. It's more material intensive, more land, way less value delivered. We spent more money last year on that, you know, that collectively is 3% of global energy, than we spent investment dollars in the hydrocarbons that are over 80% of global energy. So there's there's a little more than a trillion dollars getting spent this way and you know and five so or six hundred billion. So we're talking about a colossal money. waste of money. It's a colossal malinvestment. Absolutely. But it's also getting a growing and growing number of interest parties, right? There's huge money in it now. You know, I, I as I always say it's like a reverse so Robin. I don't know the answer to this, but uh, I use a term in my rule of law classes that I teach sometimes and and it's just a, a quick a quick and dirty acronym, uh, you know, government grant based science right now. And and I think that's a big part of it. You're identifying the fact that this is so politicized. You know, there's these interest groups. You have these people who are saying, "Well, I can I can get funding this way." And then there's a feedback loop that says, "Okay, I got to I got to keep saying the alarm stuff is going to happen or else I'll get off, cut off from the funding." But when did that happen where we went away from and maybe you don't know, I don't know, but it used to be the entrepreneurs and the businesses in America invested in long-term research themselves. You know, Bell Labs or any number of large institutions would invest in technology or innovation or research for the future. And then all of a sudden that dried up because, you know, oftentimes bad money pushes good money out. And, and now you have the government, maybe 90% of all money that's really long-term serious research has strings attached to it, right? It's true. It's true. The, the corporate sector and the corporate sector was incredibly important in driving basic research. Think of the invention of the transistor. Um, think of the commercial production of oil and gas and then the refining of it. This was American entrepreneurs at their best. Most of the great things we have today, heck, nitrogen fertilizer, my favorite use of hydrocarbons, right, is to produce nitrogen fertilizer that's responsible for half of food production. That was two chemists, an academic chemist and an industrialist in Germany that just changed the world with these awesome innovations. And, and Mike, you're right. The, the corporate role in research is shrinking. I do think it's unfortunate. And government funding, uh, I'm, I'm totally fine with government funding of basic research. But as you just said, the problem is the strings attached. It's what gets funded and Yeah, that's what where I'm not fine because there's always those strings attached, right? Right. The role of the government should be in funding basic research. Like if, if climate change was this existential threat, I, I think the data is pretty compelling that it's not. It's real. It's slow moving probably doesn't crack the top 10 problems in the world today, but it is a real thing. But let's say it was the top one, two, or three problems. The right answer there is to fund fundamental basic research around energy and energy conversion and different energy technologies or, or ways to remove greenhouse gases from the atmosphere. I mean, it would be fundamental research along those lines. But almost all the money is not spent on that. You know, it's sort of subsidizing low energy density, intermittent, unreliable energy sources like wind and solar that have been around for two decades and really don't have much prospect to play a meaningful role in the global energy system. So how does that get pulled over people's eyes right now? Because you hear a lot of bright people say, well, wait, maybe that was the case in the past, but no, we're starting to see the curve change where no, clean energy, the renewable energy, wind and solar, those are now take, you know really much more uh, cost effective and they're just on the verge of actually being able to provide plenty of cheap, reliable energy for in the future. How do they rationalize that? 
So yeah, interesting dialogue for sure. I think the scales are falling off a lot of eyes there. Maybe not for clearer thinking, but for the investment money. Look, Germany and the United Kingdom and Denmark have really invested the most as a percent of their economy and trying to change their energy systems. And and the results has just been disastrous. You know, I mean, isn't Germany now, this is kind of goes back to the Ukraine thing, but isn't Germany now having to, to restart some of their coal plants because they, they shut down some of their other fossil fuel stuff? Oh, well, they, they never closed the coal plants. They, they tried to close them down and shrink them. But yeah, Germany's this great case study, right? They spent like 22 years and over a third of a trillion dollars. And that's economy, you know, a seventh the size of our economy. So think of them, they, they spent sort of two and a half, maybe three trillion dollars to completely transform their energy system. And what did they get? They went from 81% of their total energy from hydrocarbons to 75%. You know, not even 10%, not even, not even 10% of their total energy got transformed. And they ended out more than doubling their electricity prices to triple U.S. electricity rates before the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Oh. So they sort of enfeebled their economy. They pushed their low to middle income people into poverty because energy became so expensive. And if you make energy expensive and unreliable, guess what? People consume less of it. United Kingdom is another classic example. Their total energy consumption has dropped 30% because every, everything that it takes energy to make just left the United Kingdom. Instead of being made in a natural gas-powered factory in England, it's made with coal in Asia and then shipped on a diesel ship over. It turns out just, and really, it's not for lack, well, it's, there's, there hasn't been intelligent effort, but, but there's been a huge amount of funding. Wind and solar are in the electricity sector. 20% of global energy gets delivered by electricity. If we pave the whole planet with solar panels, the ceiling is 20% of global energy system. You can't get high temperature process heat to manufacture thing. You can't have energy, remote energy that can store things. Even their theoretical limit isn't very high. And you do hear these stories, well, wow, they're... Their costs have declined dramatically. Most of that was just scaling up and manufacturing. Yes, if you make a lot more of something, you can make it cheaper. But the cost of wind and solar is actually on the rise now because they've gotten the manufacturing efficiencies better. So now it's down to material costs. And they're very, you know, 10 to 20 times more materials, which are energy intensive and expensive to make in wind or solar to produce the same amount of energy as, you know, say, for example, a natural gas power plant and drilling natural gas wells and building natural gas pipelines. And oftentimes they're not taking those raw materials into account in terms of the actual energy production or, or net benefit, right? Oh, of course. They, they call them zero carbon fuels. Well, I mean, a wind turbine is made out of oil and gas. It's lubricated with oil and gas. It's shipped and assembled with oil and gas. And when it breaks, it's a diesel truck drives out and they, they take that several thousand pound oil blade and they stick another oil blade on it. So yeah, they're, of course, they're not zero greenhouse gas emissions. They're lower greenhouse gas emissions and they may be 75, 80% lower greenhouse gas emissions. But of course, that's not our only impact on the planet. Dramatically more land. I would say definitely more pollutants as well. Solar panels are super super energy intensive manufacturing. Their dominant polysilicon is dominantly made in China, all in coal burning factories, a ton of it, a disturbing amount of it with slave labor. Like this is not low impact on the environment stuff. And of course, the impact on the land. Everybody's seen wind turbines and solar panels around. Well, you, you can see everywhere what makes 4% of U.S. energy, most people have not even seen an oil and gas well, you know, that provides, or just oil and gas, even without coal. Oil and gas are 70% of U.S. energy. So it's just, a, it's just a bigger footprint on the land, a bigger footprint on nature, and a bigger footprint on material and energy usage, 
but it is lower greenhouse gas. It, it so checks Chris, that one box. So we were talking about uh, you know the, the the situation in Germany. I, I, that reminded me to ask you about France because France has. It seems like from what my reading is that they've done a lot more uh, research and development in nuclear energy. And I'm curious if you want to make a comment about the future of nuclear power. Absolutely. So as you mentioned, look, France gets the largest percent of its electricity from nuclear of any other country. About 70% of their electricity comes from nuclear. That's a great technology. It works when the wind isn't blowing. It works when the sun isn't shining. It works when it's cold. It works when it's hot. And it's energy dense. A small, you know, a relatively a kilometer or something, a square kilometer of land, you can get a gigawatt of power out. You're going to need hundreds of times that much land with wind and solar, and then they're going to go away when the wind doesn't blow and the sun doesn't shine. So nuclear is a fantastic technology. So is the, is the U.S. regulatory regime starting to come around to that and say, look, this is, this is if you want cleaner energy and you want cheaper and we, and we have this, you know, we want the economy to, to, to thrive, maybe we need to open our minds about that technology. The dialogue is going that direction. There's bipartisan, quasi-support for nuclear now. Public support for nuclear is growing a fair amount, mostly because the young, those that are under 40, you know, they don't remember the, the protests in Three Mile Island. Right. I think the support is coming back for nuclear in the U.S. I think that's a fantastic thing. And the next generation nuclear, these small modular reactors, they're going to be safer, more economical, cheaper, more flexible than the sort, you know, right after we figured out how to, how to use nuclear power to explode an atomic bomb, we built a power plant in like 11 years. That's first generation technology is most of what's out there. What'll come in the next five, 10, 20 years is going to be next generation. It will be great. It will be meaningful. A hundred years from now, there's two things that really have the prospects to be large players empowering the world, hydrocarbons and nuclear. And the faster we ramp up nuclear, you know, the larger market share that it'll get, and I'm all in for that. And it can provide not just electricity, but also high temperature process heat that you can use uh, for manufacturing process. It can power ships and submarines. So yeah, I'm a huge nuclear fan. So you're saying it started, the conversation's happening, but I mean, those small nuclear, I don't know if you call them nuclear plants, small, uh, small read, modular reactors, they yeah, call them SMRs. SMRs, that's right. And, and, and those are being deployed around the world. They aren't really, that's not something that's happening here, but I've heard that they're actually starting to, you know, the, uh, some of those companies are actually have workable models and they're, they're uh, selling them in other countries. Well, other countries are building nuclear, but, and, and, and not the first generation technology, but not really small modular reactors yet. But I think we will see them. And yeah, we may see them more in other countries before here. But I, I, think, I think the dam is about to break. And 10 years from now, we'll see a fair amount of small modular reactors starting to catch traction in the U.S., of course, the regulatory bureaucracy and fear mongers will do everything they can to slow it. Right, right. And sadly, they'll probably be successful in making it go much slower than it should go in a market or a rational fear-based calculation. So it's one of those things where we just need more pain to, to, to motivate, us, motivate us. I mean, we need higher prices. Uh, we need more, less reliability before people go, wait, we need something different. We need to go back to, to unleashing the entrepreneurial spirit in hydrocarbons and or uh, nuclear, it sounds like. Yeah, I, I think you're right that people only get sober about energy when it becomes personal them. It becomes expensive, it becomes unreliable, and they've had enough, then they get sober on energy. Yeah. So another, another kind of technology question. What about AI? You know, here, everyone's kind of playing with this chat GPT thing. What are the, the cool things that are going on in AI with regard to energy development? 
So energy is a lot about big system decision-making and trade-offs and all that. I think we use machine learning in, in some of our design and our frac design efforts, um, and in fact, even in our equipment design. So technology uh, keeps getting better. People tell me, well, AI, it's going to make all of us irrelevant. Well, you know, AI doesn't have a consciousness. It doesn't have an aesthetic sense or opinions about art. It sort of synthesizes what humans thought and wrote. So I personally believe that, that the fears about it are, are a little bit overblown. Like when I was a kid, right, be, being able to do arithmetic, adding a bunch of numbers really fast, that was a great skill. Well, then calculators came around, and that skill didn't matter anymore. Right. doesn't mean we didn't do math. We just we outsourced the easy stuff. We did no, the more we, we actually did a recent podcast episode on, on new technology, and I think there's some legitimate concerns about, okay, this – this kind of uh, artif- you know, quote artificial intelligence uh, is is scary, but but every time you've had new technology, every time you know from the beginning of time, you, you know people are worried about job displacement, and 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 that actually happens. I mean, that, that it's a real thing on a on a in a particular industry. You know, the horse and buggy whip type thing. You know, Henry Ford displaced a lot of people in transportation that way, but the 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 vast numbers of jobs beyond that that are created is just incredible. It's great for our economy and and we need to have more innovation like that. So I'm not I'm not too concerned. I'm just wondering how uh, how it's impacting that industry. Another question I have for you, and this is maybe I don't want this to be out of left field, but so you're sort of economist as well and you, I saw that you're you're on the you're on the Denver uh, branch of the Kansas City Fed. So I got to ask you as a libertarian are, are you a Fed guy? Are you a Fed a supporter of the Fed? What is your view on the Fed and their activities today, and how they're how they're dealing with the inflation uh, problem, and and uh, you know man, you know the centrally planned banking uh, uh, scenario? So I, I can't obviously. I, my disclaimer: I can't. I'm not speaking as a member of the Federal Reserve. I'm a board, but I am not authorized to speak for the Fed. So I'll just give you my personal opinions. Um, I do think the Fed's an important institution, and I do think it's a necessary institution. And let me let me tell you why, and maybe it's a little too much economics. No, the no. U.S. Throve, thrived in the late 1800s, sort of the golden age, huge growth in, in, in wealth with, with cyclical ups and downs, but people got better. And it was a period that was deflationary because the economy was growing faster than the gold supply. So we had deflation, but that was okay because we didn't have dominantly a wage economy. We had a barter economy. So, hey, my my thing got more value than yours. We got to trade at a different ratio. That's not a problem. Once it became where we, and and even in the 30s, this was the case, where the majority of Americans, and today almost all Americans, get paid a set dollar wage or salary. You know, my salary is $80,000 a year. You can't lower someone's salary. It's a social thing. Um, and, And in fact, in the Great Depression, they made it illegal to lower someone's salary. And so when we had deflation in the Great Depression, which was actually just a catastrophic screw-up of the Fed because they were trying to defend the value of the dollar relative to gold. Absolutely wrong target. They didn't get, when you create deflation in a wage economy, you're going to get high unemployment unless you can lower everyone's wages, but you can't. On a practical basis, you can't lower people's wages. So the Fed was made a catastrophic mistake in the Depression. I think they were the main cause of it. The FDR certainly wasn't helpful, and he added on to it. So that's a different place. So now we have an economy that grows rapidly and productivity grows at a rate that the, the, the supply of gold does not grow at all at that rate or even in sync with that. So to me, the perfect monetary policy is basically what our goal is today, is you don't want 0% inflation because then if you've got someone who's not very productive or times are economically tough, you can't lower their wage at all. 
With 2% inflation, there's a, there's a little bit of a, a spur of action today because it'll be more expensive tomorrow. There's a little bit of a, if somebody's an underproducer or your industry's in great stress, if you keep wages flat, you're effectively lowering your wage burden slowly. A little bit of inflation, steady inflation, I think is the perfect monetary system. And that is the goal this of does, the This Federal does Reserve. sound a little bit like Fed speak. I mean, I, 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 I'm surprised that you're saying that. My view is that during the late 1800s, the primary reason why there was such growth, it wasn't necessarily because, you know, it wasn't a barter economy so much. There was free banking in the sense that you had, you know, lots of innovation going on in banking and banks having their own currency and so forth. And you didn't have the centrally planned aspect. But it was because you had so much more freedom, you know, so much less regulation, so much more freedom, and therefore so much more entrepreneurialism and the use of people's minds and an explosion of growth. But I hear you saying that the Fed today having a target of 2% inflation, 2% of my money being worth that much less every year is a good thing. And I, I don't I mean, it sounds like... It's, it's the dollar is not a store of value. The dollar is a median of exchange. Well, it should it be is, both. It, 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 well... It's a short-term store of value. It's not a long-term store of value because it's designed to be worth less every year. Well, um, by current policy, right? Exactly, exactly. But that is the current policy. I personally believe it's the right policy, and I believed this long before uh, I joined the board of the Fed. In fact, I joined the board of the Fed because we were tipping towards a risk of deflation. Japan has had 30 awful years of economic thing. And there's a lot of reasons for it, but a major one is deflation. Once you go into def Europe, was teetering that way as well. Negative interest rates um, and deflation is just corrosive to a society. And there's not simple but, great fixes to this problem. Yeah, so that, I don't know if I'd agree with you on the you know the the cause. Certainly, there's no disputing what's going on with Japan. You know, the question is, what's the cause and effect? And so I got to have you back on for a whole new discussion about uh, central banking and monetary policy and the Federal Reserve, if you, to whatever degree you can talk about that. But I got I got to ask you, are you optimistic? I mean, I, I know you've got kids. You've got a recently married daughter. Yes. Um, you know, and one of the things, that, especially this whole climate change thing people are talking about kids are saying they don't want to have kids anymore. i don't know if you want grandkids or you know uh, but everyone but, wants grandkids right, yeah right. of course i want grandkids. so um how optimistic are you right now especially and i didn't even get to the whole esg thing you know i saw you at the colorado business roundtable a few weeks ago and i thought you did a fantastic job of talking to this guy at blackrock maybe we can have you on again to talk about the whole esg dei woke uh thing that's going on in our culture right now but i'm i'm want to end on the just the idea of how optimistic are you about the future? I'm optimistic. Short term, we've got a lot of headwinds, but you can go through history. We've had horrible times in the past, much worse times than we've had today. And the human spirit and human cooperation have engineered their way through it. I mean, the Soviet Union was horrific. It fell. Obviously, Russia today is, is just as bad, but those things ultimately will, will go away because Russia is, is not this great threat to the world. It's a weakened, failing state, terrible for the number of Russians there, but success snowballs and failure tends to snowball too. Well, especially when people have courage like you do to, to actually stand up to it and just say what they think. What is reasoned policy? Let's try to figure out what the actual observing reality is and balance it against what human needs are. To me, that's one of the biggest things. You know, when, when you, you, you use the example of the Soviet Union or lots of problems that we have today, but when people just say, wait, let's just, you know, let's stand up to that and, and, and fight back in a reasoned way, it's amazing how bullies collapse, myths dissolve, 
and we, we have a much brighter future. Exactly. We'll only change direction with bold people standing up and pushing for change. But if you look at some poll data, even like on woke, as you described, the, the people that are under 25 are a lot less woke than the people who are 25 to 35. Kids are eventually going to see through this nonsense. No, we don't want to re-racialize society and start category, categorizing everyone by race and gender and sexual. That's what we used to do, and we thought it was terrible. We're not going to go back there. Yes, we've had a generation that's driven that way. But I, I, I think hopefully we are at or near peak woke, and I think the climate mania will peak in the next five or 10 years as well. I'm an optimist by nature, so don't bet your life savings on my beliefs, but, but I am optimistic that we'll get a swing back on this and that common sense and, and freedom will prevail in the end. It will. Well, I really appreciate you spending some time with me and hopefully you'll come back and we can talk about monetary policy or something like that. This has been fantastic. I love that we disagree on the economic monetary policy. It is a great dialogue with a lot of room for disagreement, but a, yeah, dialogue for another time. Yeah, definitely. Thanks so much. Chris Wright from Liberty Energy, one of my heroes locally and, and nationally. He's a, a fine defender of capitalism. If you like this episode, please share it with your friends. Have everyone come to our website and look at, if you haven't already seen it, most people have already seen this uh, North Face video, but I really appreciate you being here, Chris. Thank you so much. You bet. I'll end with Milton Friedman and Anna Schwartz's Monetary History of the United States, written in like 1960, the best really overview of monetary policy, the impacts of it, and the causes of the Depression. Milton was right so often, so often. He was, but he, I'll say that for another time. We've we got to have you back on and talk about Milton Friedman because he's obviously another hero, um, but he had some issues, and I'll make sure we point them out next time. Thanks, Chris. Thank you. 